0: Well, as riders throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from Atop a Hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritz Hughes. Thank you, Gertrude, and Ola, listeners. Welcome to episode 56 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritz Hughes. We're now just one week away from the 2011 West Virginia Writers Summer Conference, taking place at Cedar Lakes Conference Center in Ripley, West Virginia. Pre-registration for that is now closed. However, we always accept walk-in attendees, so don't let that scare you off. If you do plan to attend and have not pre-registered with us, that's perfectly fine, but you might want to contact Cedar Lakes Conference Center regarding meals and lodging should you wish to have either of those during your stay. Contact information for that is available at our website, wvwriters.org. Our guest for today's podcast, Meredith Sue Willis. We'll be leading two workshops at the summer conference, as well as giving the keynote speech at our awards banquet Saturday night. Meredith Sue was born and raised in north-central West Virginia in the town of Shinston. She has degrees from Bernard College and Columbia University, and her fiction has been published by Scribner's, HarperCollins, West Virginia University Press, Ohio University Press, and others. She comes from a family of teachers and followed into that profession herself. Currently she serves as adjunct assistant professor of creative writing at New York University School of Continuing and Professional Studies. Her novels include A Space Apart, Oradell at Sea, Higher Ground, Only Great Changes, and Trespassers. Her novels for children include Billy of Fish House Lane, The Secret Superpowers of Marco, and Marco's Monster. Her short story collections include Dwight's House and Other Stories, In the Mountains of America, and her latest Out of the Mountains. Meredith Sue is also devoted to writing about the craft of writing. She's written nonfiction titles such as Blazing Pencils, Personal Fiction Writing, Deep Revision, and her latest, 10 Strategies to Write Your Novel. Meredith Sue Willis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Like our guest Sarah Dooley from last week, you've been someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a while now, just by myself, and you've also come repeatedly recommended to me by others. Kat Pleska and our former president Terry McNemer and Belinda Anderson have all have all recommended you for the mm-hmm. podcast and saying you'd be be awesome to talk to. Th- thank you so much for doing this.
1: I'm delighted and those are the good people you named.
0: <laughs> I-, I think I first became aware of you shortly after I moved to West Virginia um, around the time Oradell at Sea was released, I was working in a public library at the time, and we had that as one of the titles in our new fiction there. And one of our patrons in the Lewisburg area was Belinda Anderson, who had just done an interview with you for Artworks around that time. Uh huh. It wasn't until later on that I, I learned about your Books for Readers newsletter and began playing Connect the Dots and learned about the tremendous amount of other work you've had published. I thought before we talked about some of your books and even your workshops for the conference, we might talk about that books for readers newsletter.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a it's an online newsletter that I also email out to a select group who are selected by choosing to get on the list, which means everybody's invited, and uh, it is it's a place where I do two things. Uh, one is. I actually get ideas for what to read myself. I call it uh, books for readers. And I had found, in, in, as the more I teach and the older I get, and then when I have family, I was finding myself spending less time reading. And I thought, gee, it would be great to know what people are reading. So I started reporting in my little online newsletter on what I was reading, and asking people for suggestions back, and uh, and so it's become kind of an exchange. Sometimes I have a guest editor, but more often people just tell me, tell me what they're reading, and I say what I'm reading, and then I've expanded it to include um, announcements uh, when when people have new books. Uh, a lot of the readers turn out to be writers, and, and you know just various information. So that's been um, it's been a lot of fun because I, I use it for myself, and uh, and you know and for other people too
0: and you've been a blogger since uh, two thousand four or so from what I can tell from your website
1: yeah i, I haven't really i, I i'm not I, i'm not a, i don't think i'm a very hmm, i'm not satisfied with my blogging i don't i don't consider it really my strengths uh i do blog I, I have a little i have a little bit of a personal blog and lately I started one about uh electronic readers and I'm not making any kind of big effort to get people to read them, even because I'm not quite sure what it is I'm doing with them but 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 on the other hand, it's fun to have stuff it's easier to keep stuff on the web than it is to try to keep files in your office to tell you the truth um and so I do that and i and i've and I've had to you know like learned not to not to polish too much for blogs. that's something else I learned from my brother in law who said about something. In fact, about one of my early newsletters, he said it was much too polished. He said, internet writing has to be uh, kind of loose and conversational and all this stuff. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's largely true. It, it's, uh, blogging is much closer to the old art of letter writing, in my opinion, than it is to uh, finished poetry or essays or something like that.
0: Especially if you can imagine yourself writing to an individual... Or have kind of the ideal reader in mind that you're aiming at,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and in in some of my blogging experience in the past, sometimes you you miss your target, and somebody else steps into the picture that isn't your ideal reader, and they don't respond well.
1: <laughs> but yes, yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, you get some kind of ugly stuff going. At one point, I was I, I remember, um, maybe this was maybe three years ago. We went to see a um, a magician perform, and I'm not a big fan of magic, but my husband is, so we went. And it was fun. And I just did a little blog about my reactions to that and what I thought of this, this magician. And it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't negative. It was just basically more about my opinion of magicians. <laughs> and I got this terrible, angry uh, uh, response back, not from the magician, but from some fan of his, who just excoriated me for being a bad person. "He's just awful. <laughs> He's terrible. And that, I mean, this wasn't. I wish I had done it on, say, a, a political issue or something I cared about. And it was, I was just kind of randomly saying, "Oh, we went to see a magician today."
0: You don't want to piss off the magicians; they'll make you disappear.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I'm afraid of that. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I noticed in your your most recent newsletter, you had kind of categorized some of the re- the books you were reviewing to what you were reading on Kindle and what you were reading in print. Yes. And I have only recently begun reading things with the Kindle app for my phone and find it's a very convenient way to, to keep a book with you at all times.
1: Yes. Um, I, I, it's interesting because I have, um, as most writers do, you know, quite a few writer friends, and I have a writer's group, and many of them are so adamant about the beauty and importance and undying value of, of, of books, you know, of uh, paper books, and I am absolutely delighted with my Kindle. I have some bad things to say about Amazon, but uh, the Kindle itself, I can't get over it. I'm walking around with all of George Eliot, all of Jane Austen, uh, a lot of Anthony Trollope, I've got the entire Victorian book list on on my Kindle, and those are some of my fam- favorite um, leisure reading. Uh, they also, of course, are free. So one of my problems with the Kindle is that I'm what I'm finding myself doing is having to discipline myself not to buy new books because they're so easy to get. And of course, that's the that's Amazon.com's nefarious little plot that we should all. Say, oh, that sounds like a good book, and then go on and pay eleven ninety nine or twelve ninety nine for this book. Uh, so I've been trying only to buy things that are um, really, really appealing, or else I'm doing like I'm doing. I have to write um, a, a paper for the fall for a, a program I'm going to give, and I'm, I actually purchased that book so I could take it with me. As you said, you know it's convenient to have with me. But there's a, there's a lot to be. Worked out with these e-books. Uh, I don't think it's fair that I should buy a book and not be able to lend it to you. You know, when I buy a, a, a hard copy book, I can say, "Oh, borrow it." You know, give it back or pass it on. And you can't do that with um, the Kindle. Uh, they have a program for lending at one time, if the publisher is agreeable, and most of the publishers aren't. I mean, the whole publishing industry, and not and and the ebook industry, maybe above all, it's all uh, really in flux in all kinds of interesting ways. But it hasn't settled down yet. But having that having been said, I just uh, I just love reading that thing.
0: Well, I had I was telling Sarah Dooley when I talked to her that her book Livy Owen lived here has caused trouble in my household because <laughs> my wife is going to steal my phone because <laughs> that's where I read read that on Kindle. However, I wasn't able to read your books on Kindle because neither of the two books you published you had published in two thousand ten are available on that just yet
1: that's correct um uh, the uh ohio University Press I'm not quite sure why I'm not sure what they have a pdf available but that's nowhere near as readable as a real digital book i mean you could you can read it on a digital book but it it's not um the formatting isn't as good yeah and you know as far as I'm concerned, the sooner all my publishers get my books on in the various digital formats, The Happier I'll Be, because I just, uh, I mean, it's just another way for people to read books, and it's great.
0: You've written a few novels for kids and young adults, including The Secret Superpowers of Marco and its follow-up, Marco's Monster. Do you have any more children's books in the works?
1: I'm I'm writing something that may turn out to be a young adult. It has, and the reason I say that, and the reason I sound a little wishy-washy about it is that it's the narrator is a young adult, and so that I haven't quite decided which way it's going to go, You know, if it's aimed at anybody who wants to read it or if it's aimed at adults or if it's actually aimed at young adults. So I'm afraid it won't hit the young adult uh, market because it doesn't have any vampires or werewolves. So I have to work on that. Um, but the children's books... Um, I never met to write children's books, but I I spent a lot of time in the 1970s and 80s and, and right on up to the present doing writer in the school work in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut areas. Um, I was never a full-time classroom teacher, but I really have done for a long time work in the schools. Uh, so one of the things that I used to do a lot was type up children's stories and poems to put into some kind of publication for them. So I got very used to actually having my my hands type out the words of children. And, and at some point, um, I just suddenly started hearing a kid's voice in my head, and that was where that first story came from. It was also the time when my own son was about the same age. So you know a lot of things came together. But to me, actually, my, my three children's books that have been published are all first person, and actually so is this, young adult novel that i'm talking about they're all first person they're not appalachian because those are not the kids that i spent time teaching uh they are uh, basically me imagining being um a child under certain circumstances with certain situations and certain kinds of fun and all that kind of thing um so they to me they're in a way they're 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 like doing an experiment and writing a short story in the voice of somebody unlike you. I mean, that's a very standard writing teacher's exercise to say, write a poem, write a letter, write a something in the voice of somebody who's young if you're old or old if you're young or male if you're female. And to some extent, doing those, those children's books came out of that kind of uh, impulse in my mind.
0: Well, I just noticed those titles as being ones that look like they would have been attracted to me when attractive to me when I was in about junior high, so uh-huh. <laughs> and I saw the the cover art for them. I was like, yeah that that's what little Eric would have read oh, good Well, your latest uh, book that came out in July of 2010 is a collection of 12 short stories called Out of the Mountains Appalachian Stories, which, as you mentioned, is from Ohio University Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly Appalachia is something in your blood because I, I was going over your resume, and other than a, a few writer in resident stints you did back in West Virginia, you don't seem to have been an actual resident of the state for some time now. What keeps you coming back to Appalachia in your fiction?
1: Well, my mother, my mother still lives in, uh, in, in Chinston, she's still alive and uh, and I'm so I'm even though I haven't been a, a voting resident for a long time uh, I've been you know spending time every well a lot you know I'm down a lot yeah. and and interestingly enough when my first book was published uh, I was given such nice treatment by um, people in West Virginia librarians and people that I just it it really changed my whole attitude because i had i I grew up at a time when if you were going to be a writer, you thought you had to go somewhere else uh you thought you had i mean i thought i had to go to, I thought you had to go to new york uh and i mean there there've always been times when writers thought that there were times when Americans thought they had to go to Paris and I thought I had to go to new york and by the time I began to publish it there was a growing um a, a community of writers in West Virginia. In fact, I, I was around for one of the very early West Virginia Writers Association uh, conferences uh, at, at Jackson's Mill way back when. when uh, mm-hmm. I immediately started getting invited to things, and it really did a lot of things for me. Aside from enjoying it and making new friends, which is obvious, it also gave me a whole other view of uh, the state and the region and it, and I began to read things I should have read long ago. Didn't even know they were there. Uh, I'd never heard of I'd never really heard of Davis Grubb. Well, that's not quite true. I'd heard of i have heard of Night of the Hunter, but I didn't know he was from West Virginia. And my librarian friend Merle Moore uh, was a good friend of his, and she introduced me to him. And it just it just kind of opened up the whole thing. Another friend of mine, uh, Phyllis Moore, who's kind of a, a a wonderful student of West Virginia literature. Um, taught me, gave me all kinds of names of people that I should read and books I should read, and it just totally uh, changed my whole relationship. So I went from somebody who felt like the faster I got at, the more important or the better for my work. I mean, not not that I. I mean, I always I wasn't angry, and I always had friends, and I always visited, and I always loved going home. But for the first time, I realized there was actually um, there was actually literature to be made and to be read. From uh, West Virginia and certainly the rest of Appalachia, and that's been a real essential to me so that um so that part of my imagination is always working on West Virginia, both new things and I, I mean some of the things in this new book of short stories are based on very recent uh, events that I participated in or or saw or you know heard about, and at the same time also certainly going back to 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 my memories and things, but I anyway I I feel myself uh, I feel myself very much having dual citizenship in uh, in West Virginia and the rest of Appalachia and in the Northeast. I mean, one of the things that my family, my roots are people who moved around a lot, uh, and this is something else I've spoken about before. But one of the most interesting things I ever discovered was my mother had an old publication from Consolidation Coal. They used to put out these publications about people who worked for them, and and they would cover all the different little coal towns that they owned. And one of the things, the reason she had it was that her grandfather, my great-grandfather, had died, and he had been associated with the mines, not as a miner, but as something. And so there was an obituary of him. And as I flipped through these pages, I found a photograph of, the children of a storekeeper way down in either Corbin, Virginia, or maybe Jenkins, Kentucky, I forget which, some other little place. And it was my dad and his uh, sister, his baby sister. So my family, you know, was like connected via coal to the entire Region and my dad's people, because his dad was a storekeeper, he kept moving wherever consolidation coal sent him, and that's how he ended up in West Virginia. He was really from from Wise County, Virginia, and uh, and and so they ended up. He ended up in in Chimston, West Virginia, where he met my mother and they married. And, and there's this long history in my family of like you know kind of not not sticking to a home place but moving moving around. And I, that's one of my one of my little minor themes that I think that also is part of. Um, of what Appalachians do is they they, they go over the next mountain like Daniel Boone.
0: And I know a lot of that continues today. Uh, My wife and I used to live in Charlotte before we moved here, Uh and a lot of the people in Charlotte are from West Virginia who left the state to find work.
1: Mm -hmm. And you also, I mean, you find them in the other direction in Ohio around Cleveland Mm -hmm. and Columbus. I have uh, I had a, a cousin and an aunt who went there, so so yeah, I mean you know there it, it, there there are certainly you know economic reasons for this, but at any rate i always i always I was always very struck by the fact that, that Daniel Boone, who was supposed to be this quintessential appalachian and he he never stayed in one place at all. he just kept on going
0: We always noticed when we would go away for holidays, we would leave West Virginia to go down to North Carolina, where my wife 's family was. That the line of cars coming into West Virginia from North Carolina oh. <laughs> was far far thicker than the ones leaving, <laughs> and then it would reverse on our way home. Uh, yeah. So the collection of stories uh, out of the mountains um, often features characters that carry over between stories, and we sometimes catch up with them later on in their lives. I love collections that do that that kind of create a world. Mm. Uh, did you enter the project deciding to build a cohesive world in this way, or did just some stories sync up that way?
1: Well, I'm—I actually I, I consider myself mostly a novelist, so I—I I, I like things that you can you can go into and stay there for a while. So while I do occasionally write like some flash fiction and stuff because it's uh, it's very publishable on the web and whatnot, I often often find myself writing things that start you know swelling up into something bigger and And therefore, even when I do write something that looks like it's going to be a short story, I figure well heck if it needs if it needs a doctor, why should I make up a doctor? Why don't I use the one that's going to appear in some other book of mine and mm-hmm. um and again, some of my characters I just uh feel like um i just you know I, I like them and don't like to let them go <laughs> so, i mean it's, 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 so I think the fact that there are ties among the stories in the, in out of the mountains it, it's just because I, that's the way I think. You know, I don't think in discrete little finished uh, objects. I think in things connected.
0: As a, as a guy who's been slowly putting together a collection of short stories, I'm kind of curious as to any pointers you'd have for me and other listeners about deciding what story goes where in a collection.
1: Oh, you know, I, I, well, it's very, I mean, I, uh, I, don't have, I don't know if I have any pointers, but I know it's very important. I actually, um, two nights ago, visited a book discussion group um, in New Jersey, I mean, so was, I was. This was uh, I, mean, I was invited by somebody I knew, and they read they read that book, and one of the people said that she almost couldn't read the book because she was so put off by the first story. So, I mean, I mean, I could say more about that, but the fact that that I started with a story that turns out to be pretty different from the other stories in style and tone and everything. It, it's possible that was a mistake. I don't even know if that... I mean, I don't think so, but it is, a, it is a taking a chance if if one of the stories is really different from the rest of them and you put it at the beginning or the end or something. So I'm not... You know, that that's, that's one thing that just happened to me. Otherwise, I just... I don't think I wrote any of these stories for the collection. I had them. And I really kind of grouped them by, one of them was about, there were three stories, I think, about one character, or at least she appeared in them. Um, There was a couple of stories about young people who, in my mind, I called that section young people at risk, although I would never, you know, entitle a section of a book that. Um, And uh, and then the, the last few tend to be about some kind of reconciliation of some sort or another. And but um, but it, but I figured out. But that's something I did later. And 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 uh, and I actually used there are a couple of stories in that collection from my previous Appalachian collection uh, in the mountains of America, and I chose only ones that really really fit the, the 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 themes or the categories or the things I was thinking about. I didn't I didn't use necessarily even the stories I liked best from the first collection.
0: We had said you consider yourself primarily a novelist, and one of your more recent, I guess it was January of 2010, you had a, a book called Ten Strategies to Write Your Novel mm-hmm. that was published. Uh, why did you decide to write a book about writing novels?
1: That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, it, um, I, I teach novel writing. I mean, I teach various kinds of writing, but uh, I regularly teach novel writing, and um I have a lot of notes. You know, I have a lot of things that happen in classes. Um, teaching is very different from writing, but, you know, there is certainly some overlap. So it was it was in many ways a kind of natural book to write because I had a very clear audience in mind, you know, it was, and which is not necessarily true when I write stories and um, novels. But uh, to write a book about novel writing, I mean, you know, you're writing to people who are hoping to get going on a novel. You're not writing to people who have already written 10 novels because they probably wouldn't pick the book up, but so you know you're writing to people who, 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 who want some thoughts about how you approach it. And that was kind of fun. So it was like teaching my class with, with uh, without the pleasure of people giving you feedback immediately. But, but really, I wrote the book because I had a lot of materials that um, I thought could be put in one place. And actually, now that I'm teaching, uh, you know, back to teaching it, um, I, you know, I, I keep the book nearby, and I often flip through it to remind myself of things I've
0: forgotten. Well, one of the chapters is about structure, which is something that many people find challenging when writing a novel. Uh, you use a phrase, architectonics. Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I just, I just thought that was a nice fancy word. It's really for, for. It's really another way of saying architecture or, or structure or the the big pieces that hold something together. I think a basic problem a lot of writers have is they tend to get caught up in the surface of their writing and the polishing and the word choice and uh and, and you know and and people many, many people can spend days on a few pages, you know, just painstakingly going over them and over them. Um and I I like to do that and believe in doing that, but I don't think you should do it until you've got some good strong bones to hold up the flesh and then, then when you get around to uh I don't know, you know, brushing the creature's coat and uh, uh, you know putting bells on its ears or whatever. Then, mm-hmm. then, you, uh, uh, then then you should do that, and you should do that, you have to do that. But you need the bones first, and so that's why I think the whole structure thing is so important. And that's and that's why I talk about when, I, when I'm talking about the architectonics, just the big, you know, what's your big? And I don't mean plot, but I mean what's your big form that's holding it up. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I was going to ask about revision, as it's pretty key to the whole process. But I don't want to step on anything you have planned for your workshops at the West Virginia Writer's Summer Conference, both of which are about the craft of writing a novel. Uh, what can you tell us about what you have planned for your workshops?
1: Uh, well, I can't tell you too much because I haven't really finished, <laughs> haven't finished writing the workshops. But but they're mm-hmm. going to be um, the one about strategies for, for revising the novel are will be uh, pretty straightforward. I've I'll probably break it down into micro and macro, so macro would be uh structuring architectonics, thing you know, or things like that how do you you know how do you think of this great big thing as a whole and and micro would be uh not i i don't pay I, I don't talk a lot about uh, polishing and language not because I don't think it's important but because I think other people talk about that, but I'll probably talk more about um things like housekeeping uh continuity how when you write a 400 page manuscript do you keep hold of the fact that the character used to have blue eyes and now they suddenly have brown eyes i mean there's, there's a lot of lot of little lot of housekeeping in novel writing
0: mm-hmm. and the other
1: workshop i'm doing i think is is going to be on logistics and that one is a, is a, is, a, is towards the housekeeping end of things it's about how you how you move um Characters around both the physical action, but more importantly, um, in, in uh, crowd scenes, how you what, how do you handle people in a crowd? Uh, I, I think it's the hardest thing in novel writing is to have a, a lot of people in the room or in the space. One of the hardest things to make work well. Again, I'll, I'll talk some about uh, you know when characters appear, but also probably about physical action and about overviews of scenery and spaces.
0: Well, Meredith Sue Willis, I look forward to taking your workshops at the 2011 Summer Conference next weekend. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us.
1: Well, it's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to seeing all of you there.
0: Meredith Sue Willis can be found online at MeredithSueWillis.com, all one word. There you can find a great number of resources for writers of all ages. You can also subscribe to her Books for Readers newsletter, which I highly recommend. We'll have links to those sites on our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited, and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County.